Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for a Wellbeing Wednesday podcast. This podcast is a forum where you can listen in as members share successful strategies on wellness and resiliency in both their personal and professional lives. My name is Kashel Lachman. I'm a clinical assistant professor at University of Iowa College of Pharmacy, and I practice in outpatient palliative care at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. I'll be your host today for our Wellbeing Wednesday podcast with ASHP. With me today are Mary Kay Kushner. Uh, Mary Kay is a chaplain at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, Iowa. We also have Tracy White. Tracy is a clinical pharmacy specialist at Memorial Medical Center in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And Melissa Wen, who is a PGY2 pain management and palliative care resident at the San Francisco VA healthcare system. Thanks for joining us today, Mary Kay, Tracy, and Melissa. Let's get started talking about today's topic, emotional self-care for pharmacists. Could you tell us a little bit about compassion fatigue? What is it and how does it affect our clinical practice? Sure. Uh, This is Mary Kay. I have been working on the topic of compassion fatigue for many years. And just to give you a little background, I've been a palliative care chaplain for more than 15 years. So this has become something near and dear to my heart. Um, I think we used to always call it burnout and that just never seemed to quite capture what I was experiencing. So when I came across the word compassion fatigue, it had a lot more significance to me because it really seemed to name what my experience is. And that is getting weary from investing myself in patients and families. I think all of us in healthcare started out wanting to be caring, compassionate people. And as you know, in healthcare, the expectations have just gotten more and more intense. So we're supposed to see more patients and patients are more complex. And that dynamic um, has led us to an experience of truly emotional, spiritual fatigue, where taking on the um, concerns and grief and issues of people who we do care about. Certainly, it's on a professional level, but in order to be good professionals, we need to connect. We need to have that sense of compassion and caring. And People can really tell the difference. So the answer is not to pull back and withdraw and become robotic in our work. It's to continue to engage, but understanding, naming that what we're experiencing is compassion fatigue. So if you want an official definition, compassion fatigue is, Betty Coles does this best, it's a state of tension and preoccupation with cumulative trauma of our patients. And so I think another word for compassion fatigue is secondary trauma. And that really gives you the sense of being on the front lines, so to speak, and being hit 
right? Emotionally, spiritually with issues that cause us distress. So we are traumatized. And what's challenging is what do we do with that trauma? I had so many nurses when I first started talking about compassion fatigue, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's it, Mary Kay, that's it. Now, what do we do about it? So that's probably a good intro to the problem at hand. Thank you. Tracy, how have you seen this affect uh, your clinical practice? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think when I look back and reflect on my experience, I think just as Mary Kay said that uh, my experience was a accumulation effect of, of with witnessing death and suffering in hospice care. Um, to put that in context, I worked for almost 10 years in hospice care setting. Um, so I, and I was working as an advanced practice pharmacist. So I was at the bedside with these patients and their families. I'm really working through these end of life conversations and medication management of pain and symptoms. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe around year seven or eight where I started noticing that, um, you know, I was a bit more withdrawn from the work. I, I had more trouble kind of completing tasks and staying focused with things. I was probably more irritable um, with my family and my personal life. Um, so I think that led to exhaustion, certainly emotional exhaustion. Um, and it is different from burnout, as Mary Kay said, but, you know, studies show that, that burnout rates for pharmacists can be as high as 50%. And I think that is largely driven by emotional exhaustion and sort of recognizing that. And it, again, it wasn't until I started reading about what compassion fatigue was that really made me understand what my, my symptoms were. So um, ultimately, I think I took that experience and um, kind of inspired me uh, to, to reach out to the field of palliative care to really um, sort of, I think that was compounded by some moral injury um, and seeing the way that patients died and the suffering that I didn't see maybe as didn't have to be that way, you know, wanting to maybe impact that patient um, and their family members before their last and final days. And so with that, I was able to um, develop and work with the palliative care team. And now my current practice in oncology, uh, really trying to, you know, I think that our palliative care team has done a phenomenal job of trying to handle our shared grief and really working through these, these feelings and these processes as they go along. Thank you for sharing your experience with that. Mary Kay, are there any other sort of symptoms or characteristics that we look for with compassion fatigue? Yes. Yeah, so um, I often say if you notice that you're bringing the patient home with you, and of course I mean that figuratively, um, oftentimes when we leave work, it doesn't leave us. And so exactly what Tracy was talking about, especially instances that did not go well, they linger. We are trying to make sense of them. We are trying to reconcile what might've happened, um, how we could have done better, how our colleagues perhaps could have done better. So certainly that, um, that preoccupation, not being able to sleep, um, and, and really starting to sense a lessening of your passion for the work that you do. You know, what initially brought you to become pharmacists, healthcare professionals, 
you start questioning that. I used to joke that my fantasy was becoming a florist um, where I would just work with flowers and they were pretty and nice and didn't have anger issues. <laughs> and so that would be a symptom of compassion fatigue where, I mean, I say it in jest, but another element of that is cynicism, right? I think we all tend to use a little bit of that dark humor, but when it starts getting really dark and becomes part of your regular way of coping, that's a problem. Boundaries blurring where you're less clear about, ooh, where's my professional and personal line? But I would say more than anything, Tracy, you talked about it. You became aware that you were um, starting to perhaps withdraw. You were overwhelmed by emotion that probably had not been named or dealt with. So I think it's that kind of a wake up call when our internal self is saying something's not right. This is not good and it's not getting better by a vacation or um, a weekend. So that's a classic sign that you are suffering from compassion fatigue. I had that cynicism where um, I remember saying I wanted to be a lawnmower operator. <laughs> See, yes. Put my headphones in and not talk to anybody and just do my work and go home. Yeah, so, yeah. I had to... I had to clarify in the florist that I didn't want to be at the front counter working with the public. I wanted to be the one in the back making <laughs> the arrangements. Absolutely. Tracy, it sounds like you were working in hospice and then you identified that there was some suffering that you thought could have been mitigated further upstream. Then you moved towards palliative care, working with the palliative care team and with oncology as well to make that difference. Um, I think that uh, you both sort of alluded to the suffering that you see and the losses that your patients are experiencing and our patients are experiencing. And whenever I think about an unwanted loss, I think about grief. And so what role does grief, unresolved grief or grieving uh, have in compassion fatigue? So I think we need to start with the basics. Grief is any reaction to loss. Some people think grief is only related to death and dying, but it's it's really a daily part of our lives. I mean, anytime we make a choice, we lose what wasn't chosen. So I always start with that premise because I think it's important to normalize it. The other part of that is I think we've always thought of grief as a problem that needs to be solved. So we need to, you know, get over it and get past it. I think that's where words like closure started to happen. And we now know that the word closure is not helpful because it, it gives the impression that grief lasts for a certain amount of time and then it's done. We're over it. It's it's, it's, it's not a problem anymore. So I just want to remind people that if you have moved, if you have uh, gone through divorce, if you've lost a friendship, um, all those kinds of things are impacting your day-to-day -day world. So in terms of our grief experiences in the clinical world, for sure, we. Um, 
have unresolved grief. And at times, the way it comes to the fore is there another loss will happen, and suddenly we remember back to uh, a grief that happened before. For me, my deepest grief, grief was the death of my 30-year-old brother from a brainstem glioblastoma. So for somebody who works in palliative care, you, you hear that diagnosis, you know what that means. So it took me a long time to be able to, I had to take two years off, I couldn't even work. But during that two years, I was able to help to bring some meaning to that tragedy. But even now, I am wary that young men with any kind of brain cancer are going to be a potential um, unresolved grief trigger in me. So it's appreciating that the losses we have gone through in our lives have affected us, continue to affect us, even though we have accommodated them in a healthy way. They still are part of our life experience, right? So I just think it's very important for us as clinicians to be open to the fact that, yes, we will grieve. Um, that's not a bad thing, but it does need to be acknowledged and addressed. I agree with you. Uh, I've seen recirculated recently a quote from Queen Elizabeth II after 9-11. She said, grief is the price we pay for love. And oh, since Prince Philip God. died, I've seen that recirculated. And I, yes. I would just edit it for us as, as healthcare providers to say, uh, grief is the price we pay for caring. Yeah, yeah. And it's a normal part of our work. Uh, we see immense loss every day. Um, and sometimes we lose our patients and we need to stop and honor them and, and make meaning of the losses that we see and that we experience. Yeah, you know, just recently there was something on Facebook and it was written by a 911 dispatcher. And she was talking about the experience of, you know, being in that position. And so, of course, encountering lots of crisis and grief. And she said the one that they dread the most is the call that an infant has stopped breathing. And so she had one of those. Uh, the baby did not survive even after the medics arrived. And then colleagues said to her, do you need to take a break? And the response was no, no. And that was the, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, but it is so lauded in healthcare as well. That was the noble response, right? I'm going to keep going. And that's the kind of behavior we need to change. We need to say, you need a break. It's not normal to keep going and take the next crisis, the next crisis. So I think it's that kind of behavior that I really want us to address in healthcare um, and support each other in rather than creating this idea, we have no grief, we are fine, and all is well. Yeah, I agree. I love um, Jonathan Bartels, a, a nurse at University of Virginia, started something called the pause so that when you have a situation where a patient dies, you can, as a team, just all stop and, and take a moment, honor that person as a human being, as a right. life that's lost. Um, and it helps us attend to our own 
experience, sort yes. of naming what's going on. I'm not saying we wouldn't need additional reflection after that, but right. you know, at least it's stopping and not just moving right to the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think they count to 10. So it's not a huge pause, but you know, counting to 10 is significant and something we can all do individually when we encounter extreme loss or grief. So I want to take a moment, a few moments for us to all talk about how the pandemic has impacted our views and understanding of illness and loss as healthcare providers. Well, I think that, um, you know, the pandemic has brought so much more exposure to death and dying and um, to, to everybody in the country and the world, in fact. And even though death and dying is often a, a large component of what we do in palliative care, um, kind of always on our minds to some degree, um, it's not for the average person. It may not be for the average person. So I think um, just that that global scale of seeing death and dying may bring up a lot for, for people. And even if you didn't have a personal experience with it, um, you may be seeing it on the news. You know, you may be having to experience those emotions that are coming up for you as you're watching the devastation um, happen. And I think that really coming from this, kind of the PTSD that we might see um, from family members coming out of the pandemic, you know, things like they might be wondering, did they get the best care possible? What were they thinking in their final days? You know, were they in pain? How were their final moments? Were they alone? I mean, those, those things. And, and as palliative care professionals, um, I think by finding compassion, satisfaction um, comes from finding the little things that we could do to, to help with those aspects of that care. Yeah, I definitely want to echo what Tracy said. I feel like as healthcare providers, we definitely saw loss on both a macro and micro level where I would go to rounds. I was at the ICU at the time and definitely had some patients pass away individually. But then you turn on the news and then here we are understanding these mass scales of death. In a way, the pandemic also redefined loss and not just our patients. It was, you know, the threat of this could happen to our coworkers, our families, to like ourselves even. And it was even more difficult knowing that it's spread by respiratory disease. And it's it was isolating to know that we used to have each other in, as co-residents to really be able to cope with our compassion fatigue. And now with the pandemic, it was no longer the case. Absolutely. I, I think what you brought up, Melissa, about having each other to help cope with compassion fatigue is really important. For me, the interprofessional team is one of the ways that I'm able to navigate emotional aspects of patient care. And um, of course, in palliative care, we have really strong interprofessional teams. So I was grateful that I am in palliative care and I have that. And I really felt for people who might not have that kind of a support system. And even so, we were we were physically separated, but knowing that we could get on Zoom, and I agree with you that the physical separation was a challenge. <laughs> I certainly felt it, but having that strong interprofessional team was still a comfort to me. And sort of the perspective of palliative care, which Tracy, you mentioned, that perspective has given me practice in recognizing what's possible and what's not possible. Um, and so uh, palliative care, Many people don't know what palliative care is or they think of death when they hear the word palliative care. 
But palliative care is specialized medical care for people living with serious illness and their families. And it really focuses on providing relief from the symptoms and the stress of an illness with the goal of improving quality of life. It's based on the needs of the patient and not on their prognosis. So it's really appropriate at any stage of an illness alongside treatment directed at their underlying disease. So no matter what, our palliative care team always cares, and we always find a way to provide comfort and help relieve suffering. And so just having that sort of perspective that even if the treatments aren't working, uh, we can do other things to provide that human relief of suffering a little bit at least. Uh, so that's incredibly comforting to me as a provider and has helped me in the pandemic. The other piece of the pandemic was early in the pandemic, I thought, well, I still don't know what it's like to have a serious illness, but uh, wow, this lack of control, this constant uncertainty, uh, this fear, as Melissa mentioned, sort of this looming threat that you or someone you love or your teammate could uh, be struck by this illness and have catastrophic consequences. It, it was very scary. So I think it did help us build some empathy for what our patients living with serious illnesses go through. I also think that it brought an element of humility to all of us. I think as healthcare workers, we have tended to think of ourselves as kind of uh, superpowers. You know, we know exactly what to do. We know how to handle this. And COVID really, you know, caught everyone off guard. Um, really, the humility of people being at the bedside and then being in the bed. Um, I think those kinds of experiences also helped us to be more human. Um, I think many of us, certainly all of us who have been successful have suffered from perfectionism at one time or another. And uh, unless you realize that you are as vulnerable as the next person to loss, to uh, emotions, you know, you're really setting yourself up. So part of it is being open to being vulnerable. Certainly COVID brought that home. We were all vulnerable in a sense, but it was that shared human element of we are in this together and we may make mistakes, but we are connected and that's what's most important. So I think it did kind of uh, reorder our attitudes as healthcare providers to have more humility and focus more on the connection than on the perfection. I want to circle back to, you know, we're still in the pandemic, really. And I feel like there's a lot of us suffering from compassion fatigue. And even pre-pandemic, there were probably a lot of us walking around suffering from compassion fatigue. Maybe we didn't know what to call it, as Tracy shared earlier. I didn't recognize it. So now that we know a little bit about it, what if we recognize it in our colleagues, residents, or students, that they might be experiencing some components of compassion fatigue? How should we approach that situation, or how would you approach it? I think right, recognizing the symptoms that Mary Kay really mentioned before, and then also providing a very supportive environment. I think palliative care is such a unique field because we have debriefs often regarding our feelings. And then, of course, giving the support to our colleagues, residents, or students in you know, naming those 
emotions and then giving them the skills or the space and the time to cope with them. I agree. I think um, just being there for your colleagues, you know, and I think showing that vulnerability about our humanness, you know, really taking into context the, you know, the, the expectations of perfectionism and the culture of pharmacy, we can become, you know, emotionally uh, involved with our patients while also maintaining um, boundaries for ourselves and, and kind of working through your own experiences of that and showing how you have done that, maybe in difficult ways, maybe not so good, and maybe ways that you have found that really find that balance. Um, but we're, we're all in this you know, overly conscientious um, profession, maybe a, a helping profession. We wanna help in any way, which is often shown as giving of ourselves. Um, I think identifying colleagues that maybe do have low levels of support, social support, high levels of personal stress. Um, again, being there, uh, being able to be there to be a listening ear for them to work through that. If they've shared with you any previous history of trauma or unresolved grief, those are all gonna be um, folks that are gonna be more prone to developing compassion fatigue. I totally agree that we need to create that safe space and there are a lot of barriers in sort of our culture of pharmacy to having people feel safe being vulnerable. I think that we get a message that professionalism means being unflappable, composed, unaffected. And we need to reframe that to be that professionalism means having emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence doesn't mean being devoid of emotions or not showing emotions. Um, so I think we need to name and sit with those emotions and maybe I think sharing a time where I was vulnerable, where where I was able to um, have those experiences and struggle with them and, and sort of sharing the strategies that I used to uh, get through. I think that is sometimes helpful, but I always like to remember that everyone has their own needs. And I view my role as sort of supporting someone and figuring out what will work for them. Do they need time away, as Melissa mentioned? Do they need you know, an activity to do with a group or discussing it helps some people. For me, navigating emotionally challenging situations includes discussing shared experiences, again, with the interprofessional team. We have some rituals. Uh, Mary Kay and other members of our team lead us in routine sessions where we take time to honor those who've died. And then we have sessions to talk about and share how we make meaning in our work and care for ourselves and each other. I find those incredibly helpful and our learners also share that they find those incredibly helpful. So Mary Kay, what advice do you have for pharmacists and trainees to prepare for and navigate experiencing emotionally challenging situations in patient care? So I always start with our instinct is to run <laughs> whenever we encounter something that is uncomfortable or even profound, our instinct is to run. So my first word of advice is to try not to run, <laughs> to try and stay present. And some people think being present is just being physically there. And it's so much more than that. It's trying to cultivate a willingness to understand. And I use the word curiosity. So if you can have some sense of curiosity about how 
this other person is experiencing what they're experiencing, that will serve you so well because it keeps you present and it keeps you engaged on an emotional level. And that's what's needed during those times of emotional challenge. So certainly breathing, staying present, breathing, even that's a win. And then if you can get yourself to say things like, I can't imagine, or, oh my gosh, I don't know how you've gotten through this. So those words of compassion that are not brilliant, mind-blowing <laughs> insight, they're just basic connection, right? I'm, I'm with you. And then giving options. What do you need? Kind of like Cashel was talking about. Can I get you a glass of water? Um, so extending yourself in a human to human connection. Um, you don't need words of advice. You don't need pearls of wisdom. You need that willingness to stay present and then if possible to extend compassion. Um, I would add that, you know, I think for my students and residents, always at the beginning of the rotation, I ask what loss looks like for them, um, kind of what, what they have gone through personally, if they're willing to share that, to kind of work through what they may see in the weeks to come and how they can take that time at any time, you know, to step out of the room if it becomes too much, if it does bring up those personal feelings of grief or loss. I also have them do reflective writing. So really kind of at the, at the end, you know, how has this experience changed things that they may not have experienced before? How will they carry this experience with them through other patient care um, encounters? So I think that really helps them kind of grounds the work that they've done and the work that they've seen. And um, it makes it more meaningful for, uh, for them carrying that through the rest of their career. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that, Tracy, because you're right. I'm not insisting that everybody stay. There are those who will need to leave, that it's either too close or uh, too personally upsetting, that you're right, they do need to leave. The goal that I, I talk about all the time is to be authentic. It is to be authentic in the moment. And that does require that emotional intelligence that I know right now, I need to take care of myself. And so leave taking is the best response. But for those who have experienced some loss and who feel like they can engage to stay and try and be present. So thanks for clarifying that, Tracy. Well, absolutely. And I think anytime that that's needed, you know, going back to that and debriefing on it. So bringing that and going, you know, along with your lines of sitting with those emotions, naming them, reflecting on them. Um, I'm also a huge advocate for professional therapy, you know, and that that's something that, that could also help them. I support them in that. Definitely. I agree with taking the time to reflect and being introspective. I think as pharmacists and trainees, reflecting on your career and seeing that throughout your entire, you know, time in pharmacy, you've experienced multiple emotionally challenging experiences. And through that time, you've really developed resilience and taking the time to realize, hey, I've gone through all this, I've gone through all these obstacles, and I've developed these self coping mechanisms for these experiences, which have made me a stronger person, and really taking what you've learned in those situations and applying to the future. 
as a trainee, one thing I like to do is actually ask, you know, my mentors about how do they cope with these emotionally challenging experience. Sometimes it's really nice to have, you know, individuals who are much more eloquent than I am talk about how they are able to navigate through these situations. So it's always extremely helpful to have multiple perspectives to even harness for my own um, tools and how I will, you know, navigate through these experiences. Melissa, you said that you like to hear how preceptors navigate through the experiences. How else can preceptors best support learners in preparing for and navigating the emotional aspects of patient care? I really enjoyed our the part of our conversation earlier about changing culture, like as Tracy said. Palliative care is so unique in that situation. And then as residents, realizing that um, we do have support from those preceptors, I think it's really intimidating times as a trainee to even get into residency. Part of the forecast is emotional stability, which is quite daunting and intimidating at first. But realizing that as you know, as a resident, sometimes it feels like we're not allowed to fail but also realizing that if we were to have challenges, we have a whole residency advisory committee behind us. So even though it seems daunting, I don't know how I get from A to Z, what steps are in between, but I have a whole group of individuals behind me that will make sure I get there. I would just add kind of just going back to just letting them know that that we are all human and it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to cry, you know, to have that emotion and and there's maybe a time and a place to do that, but um, again, just just sort of putting that out there to them that that those emotions are normal, and especially in I think palliative care, you know, that's our therapeutic modality is the emotional connection, and so I think just modeling that and demonstrating those emotional connections with your your patients and utilizing the whole team. Um, often you'll have learners, you know, from other disciplines, and so even being able to talk through with them what they have learned through their training um, that might be helpful to the pharmacy learner. I agree. I, I think that um, I appreciated what you said, Melissa, about sort of the pressure cooker is sort of what you're describing, you know, emotional stability is one of the criteria on the on the forecast residency forms, as you mentioned. And so then you might come into residency thinking, well, you can't show emotion at all. And I think that's why earlier when when we were talking about what do you do if you recognize someone might have those symptoms or characteristics of compassion fatigue, I wanted to start with like sharing my own vulnerability. Not that I don't want to hear about theirs first, but I worry that they wouldn't feel comfortable sharing if I don't set that stage. And I think uh, setting the stage up front before they even develop that, so at the beginning of residency, at the beginning of a rotation is important and asking about their past experiences with serious illness or death or both in case you might have a similar patient on service for example that has the same illness that someone in their family died from in the past year and so they might not be ready yet to take care of a patient like that so i want to know that as a preceptor and i also agree with you tracy i, I think reflective writing can be helpful for for some learners but again it's sort of like offering them a menu of what they think might be a helpful strategy to use so our last question is why is self-compassion so essential and i would argue that it, it self-compassion is really essential when you're in a profession that is very perfectionistic as a culture 
Tell us a little bit about self-compassion and how pharmacists can practice it. So one of my favorite researchers is Kristen Neff, who has studied self-compassion. And if you go to selfcompassion.org, you will see her website, which what I love about it is she has individual um, exercises that you can do to enhance your self-compassion. The definition of self-compassion is being as good a friend to yourself as you are to others. So Kristen talks about how easy it is for us to forgive others and uh, be kind to them and tell them that wasn't that big of a mistake. And we are most critical to ourselves. So what Kristen is trying to encourage us to do is to be our own best friend and to nurture kindness towards ourselves. So um, we all know this, that it's, it's been said for forever. It's the hardest to forgive ourselves. As a chaplain, I talk about forgiveness with professionals because I think it's something nobody ever thinks about. But we may need to forgive ourselves, certainly with moral injury, moral distress, um, things that perhaps we could have done differently or done better. That kind of self-forgiveness is so important. So I want to just give you one very simple exercise. And there's kind of two parts to this. The first part is to become aware of what your self-talk is. Because for too many of us, it is negative. Oh, that was so stupid. Oh, I can't believe you did that. It's that old authoritarian super ego in us who is just always pointing the finger. And so to become aware of your self-talk and to change it to be self-affirming. So one of the things that uh, Kristen talks about, and many of you are aware, when you see a mom with her infant on, on her shoulder, what is she doing? She is patting, that rhythmic padding very tangible. So I would encourage you wherever you are right now, if you're sitting, you may want to pat your leg. If you're at your desk, you may want to pat your shoulder. And then what's so important to do along with that patting is to say things like, you are amazing. You are so good at what you do. Or even a simple, good job. I made it through the day. Good job. So it's a very basic form of self-compassion. But again, something none of us were taught to do. And we really need to learn as just a basic self-compassion practice in the work that we do. Thank you. I just recently fairly recently was introduced to self-compassion as a concept and practice uh, in a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. And, you know, the loving kindness meditation quickly became my favorite meditation. And and Kristen Neff has, has several of those on that website that you mentioned. Um, so I love the simple concept of talk to yourself as if you talk to your best friend. <laughs> Be that kind to yourself. 
That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Mary Kay, Melissa, and Tracy for joining us today to discuss compassion fatigue and the emotional aspects of patient care. If you haven't had the chance, I encourage you to visit wellbeing.ashp.org where you can learn more about our partnership with the National Academy of Medicine, resources to promote wellness and strategies to manage burnout. Please be sure to join us here each month for more on wellness and resilience. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.